This is my conversation with Naomi Burden, one of the co-founders of Means TV. Means TV's goal, uh, to be a bit cheeky about it, is to build a Netflix for the left, trying to build a progressive media organization that features podcasts, movies, original programming, and even video games to comment and criticize uh, our current era of neoliberal capitalism, trying to build international and intersectional solidarity, and to offer alternatives from the corporate media and news structure, which presents us a one-sided picture of the way the world is. Our conversation is not going to be a simple round of glad-handing or congratulations back and forth. I wanted to discuss with Naomi, however supportive I am of Means TV, my skepticism uh, and good faith criticisms of my own interactions with the U.S. and U.K. left, and her thoughts on Means TV, the viability of her project, and if there are inherent structural problems in institutions like celebrity, fame, or hierarchy itself that will prevent a truly progressive future uh, from being born no matter how many institutions like Means TV come into being. If you like interesting, complicated, and hopefully educational conversations like the one I'll have with Naomi today, please support us. You can find us on Apple, Android, Spotify, Wooshka, and wherever good podcasts are made. You can go to our YouTube channel where we have great content with artists and art from around Asia, and you can go to our main website, which is asiaarttours.com, where we build programs that try to connect travelers to the most fascinating people from around the world. All right, here's my conversation with Naomi Burden of Means TV on the left, left media, and trying to build a Netflix for the left. I hope you enjoy. Naomi Burton. Uh, I'm co-founder of Means TV, and we're the world's first worker-owned anti-capitalist streaming service. So like a Hulu or a Netflix, uh, except for we're owned by our workers and we are funded by people. Um, so we will have, you know, a library of movies, documentaries, TV shows, et cetera, available to people for $10 a month starting in February. Um, and the idea is really to create a media infrastructure that reflects better the reality we live in, um, and that gives workers more freedom uh, in the work that they do. So um, I was reading interviews on Bill Wirtz, who's, I think in spirit, shares a lot with you, perhaps not as explicitly political, but Bill Wirtz, for people who don't know, I'm not sure if you know Bill Wirtz, he did that those viral YouTube videos, A History of the World, and then A History of Japan. They got, I think, about combined, let's say, 80 million views, he doesn't take any advertising and uh, basically doesn't put anything out to monetize. Um, I bring that up not to talk about monetization, which we'll, we'll sort of talk about later, later, the structure of means and what you're going for. But just to sort of say that it, for a lot of people, 
they never, especially uh, entertainers on the left, it, it does take a little bit of luck to to get where they are. And it seems like luck and skill and hard work. And for you, that was, I think, defined for a lot of people, for you and Nick, uh, the AOC campaign ad, um, where that blew up, obviously. AOC blew up, obviously. Um, and I'm imagining that when it blew up, you had these sort of fork in the road moments where you could have done something continuously in that sort of way of continuing to produce campaign ads, working on a campaign, maybe, you know, just going into something at Netflix. And I'm wondering what it sort of feels like to have that existential moment where you've been struggling for a long time and you have to choose this risk versus reward um, and why you ultimately chose to sort of go into what is a risk in, in trying to launch Means TV. Yeah, I mean, I definitely would say to your first point, it is absolutely a, a combination of luck and skill and hard work, but like a lot of luck. You know, I sent a DM to Alexandria. I randomly saw a video of her. She was clearly, you know, a socialist. She could speak really well to the issues. So I sent her a DM. And, you know, that's how the ball got rolling. Um, and that's totally luck, you know. And then a month later, we were in New York filming. Um, and a month later it was out and all hell broke loose. Um, and so, yeah, it was definitely, you know, when that happened, Nick and I had had these two ideas. We had started Means of Production, which is a production company that we did the AOC video uh, with. We did Connie Yella Ng out of Hawaii, who was running for Congress then, a uh, video for him, Julia Salazar, um, a lot of other candidates. And we started this production company because in the 2016 election cycle, we had seen the production companies for a candidate like Bernie Sanders, they're also doing ads for Wells Fargo and Duracell Battery. And, and the ads look identical to the Bernie Sanders campaign ads, which we just thought was bullshit. Um, and so Nick and I had met in Detroit DSA. We had decided, you know, we really wanted to create uh, a production company. Nick had worked in uh, commercial film production. I had worked in uh, marketing and so we decided, you know, the first thing we could definitely do is try to create uh, a production company that never worked with corporations, that was pro-socialist, pro-communist, pro-anarchism, and try to support candidates who represent those values clearly. Um, and so, at, you know, the AOC video was our first electoral video. We had done a few videos here in Detroit where we're based uh, for unions um, and for immigration groups, but she was the first electoral video we had done. And so... That blew up um, in June. And so for the rest of 2018, because her race was one of the earlier ones, we worked as hard as we could to create as many videos as possible for socialist candidates, thinking that's where we could really uh, have the most impact at the time. But going through that process, you know, we also realized that there's a lot of limitations to electoralism. Um, and that a lot of times the candidates who you, you know, who you really support and love you know, they're not going to have any money. And so we really were focused on creating uh, a worker-owned cooperative that could be self-sustaining. That wasn't, you know, a charity project that people had to work on on their off time. Um, and so we had also, while we, were th we were, while we were working on means of production, we started thinking about means TV. So not only creating, you know, electoral content and content that supported policies that we believe in, but uh, entertainment, because, you know, we would come home at the end of the day of organizing or, you know, working on something and 
you know, you turn on the TV to Netflix and it's just like all war porn and, uh, you know, shows that are completely unrelatable and that gaslight our experiences. And so that's how we kind of started to come up with the idea of means TV. And we even talked about it when we were in New York with Alexandria, um, just how, you know, that we could, there's a lot more space to grab power if you spread out into the entertainment realm. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of people thought we were crazy for not continuing just doing electoral videos after AOC, um, because they couldn't really understand what we were talking about as far as creating entertainment. Nobody could understand how would you ever make money from that? How is that a viable business? Um, and so it was definitely a risk, but we spent the last year creating a lot of uh, videos to put out on social media to show people that anti-capitalist work around entertainment is different and it's important to our movement. Um, and, and yeah, so it's been a risk, but we're, you know, we're launching in about two months. So the finish line's in sight. Um, and it was definitely the right move. You know, if we had still been doing production videos or, you know, electoral videos, um, I don't think we would near, have nearly the impact that we've had in the last, you know, year or two. It's really topical. I was reading today about Anthony Bourdain, who, you know, I really like in a lot of ways. But um, the there was this great uh, tweet today about, you know, how he actually got his fame, which was through his mother, who was a copy editor uh, at the New York Times, who passed him along to David Remnick, who I've forget his uh, exact position at that time in the New Yorker, but it was something where he had power about who he couldn't, couldn't, you know, move to the top of the pile. And um, I, it seems like for entertainment itself, you know, you talk about sort of things like war porn, um, Citations Needed, who I think has done pretty good work of talking about media bias, both for Fox News, MSNBC, um, working with uh, Means TV collaborators, uh, Brett and Brian of um, uh, with Street Fight Radio about Mike Rowe and sort of his faux populism. Um, one of the enduring myths of sort of entertainment is sort of a star is born, that anyone can make it. And this Bourdain tweet was just a reminder to me of probably how a lot of that is is bullshit. I'm wondering from what you've heard or what you've uncovered from from developing means, and I know you have relationships with people both uh, within the Midwest, but also in places like New York and LA who work in entertainment. How is this sort of myth perpetuated of the star is born, you know, anyone can make it if they hustle? And how how does class play into that? And then how does this actually allow for this myth, allow for a lot of opportunities for exploitation and abuse? Um, Me Too comes to mind. Uh, obviously for me, but I, I want to turn that to you as, as more of an expert. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I started, you know, this is in the last two years is my kind of first foray into the entertainment industry. And, uh, you know, obviously before I got into it, I knew it was nepotistic. I knew that, you know, there were a lot of, uh, just rich people passing down roles to their kids. And, but I didn't realize to what extent that was really true. And it's like, you know, everybody is a kid of someone else or everybody, you know, that, that is universally the case, whether it's directors or even if you, you know, uh, yeah, a lot of people in film get a huge head, uh, you know, get a huge head start because of being wealthy. I mean, a lot of, you can't get started in film really, unless you have a lot of money because it costs so much money to 
have a camera or rent gear or have any of the software. Um, so I think the idea that, you know, and I, of course there are some people who get lucky and, you know, they're of course the ones that are held up as anybody can make it. Uh, but I think that's really rarely ever the case. And, you know, like when I started working on means, uh, like for example, I, you know, someone told me that adult swim, uh, which is, you know, of all the kind of entertainment, uh, you know, properties, I figured they would be one of the more progressive. Uh, they don't really hire women like at all. Uh, and so, you know, for the most part, it's like women really don't get hired there. They've just started hiring some women in the last few years. Um, so I think it's like, it, you know, it, it, we have seen that, yeah, it's incredibly nepotistic. It's a, it's an industry for the wealthy to, to create movies that reflect the world that they want us to believe is there. Um, and means TV is trying to be the opposite of that and trying to create space for all different creators and people who want to work in film to have a space to do that, to get paid while doing that, um, and to create something that isn't just for a brand. Um, and, and I think to your point about opening up space for exploitation, you know, of course it's, you know, like something that has really shocked me is the conditions on film sets, you know, film, film crews will work minimum 12 hours a day to 18 to 20 hours a day. And they're paid, you know, if you're a PA, if you're a production assistant, you know, you get paid $150 for the day by some of these places. And so you're working, you're working your body to the bone, working 20 hours a day for a couple hundred bucks, maybe just to get back up within four hours and do it again. You know, a lot of people have died driving home from, from film sets. Um, and you know, the conditions are really harsh. They're trying to get as much out of people as possible for as little as possible. And, you know, it means we're like, our, our crew days are eight to 10 hours max, you know? And, you know, we really try to make it a place where you don't need to kill yourself to make a film. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're trying to address a lot of those things, but it's rampant. So uh, one of the academics I really enjoy is this guy called John Holloway, who it's really uh, sort of, I don't, I don't know the full story of David Graeber and, you know, how he left Yale. There's all these sort of interesting tidbits you can pick up of that he was sort of forced out or that Yale they have this very famous anarchist professor, this guy called James Scott, maybe Brett or Brian have brought them up, where uh, he's just sort of there. He got grandfathered in, it seems like, before Yale became sort of even more nepotistic and neoliberal than it is now, where you could... The 60s were a wild time, Naomi. We, we <laughs> It seems like it, we would have enjoyed them. So anyway, um, John Holloway, sort of of this generation before people like David Graeber... Um, or if you're more socialist, sort of like uh, uh, David Harvey, right? So he has this great uh, term um, through his work where he sort of tries to connect communism and anarchism through his studies of the Zapatistas, where he calls commodity fetishism, which for me reading Marx can be tedious, he just calls it sort of simply the separating of doing from done. That like, let's say if we look at a house, we see the house. We don't see all the labor uh, that went into it. We don't see the laborers building it. We don't see the supply chains bringing the lumber there. We, we don't see any of that. We just see the frozen sort of done. And when I think a lot about entertainment, I see the same sort of commodity fetishism, where when we think of like a Chris Hayes, right? Chris Hayes or 
Um, even a Hassan Minaj, who I really like, there's a whole staff of people behind both those individuals doing research. Um, when we think of a New Yorker, we don't really think about, you know, the paper mill. We don't really think about uh, the truck drivers. And as I was compiling this little list, I was thinking of Tina Fey and how annoyed she is consistently in 30 Rock with the union staffers. Like a great sort of subtext of that, of 30 Rock is just how everyone is a fucking idiot who are actually helping her put on her show. They're getting in the way of her creative talent, all the sort of union knuckleheads. And I'm wondering for memes, could you talk a bit about if, if any of this thought process of commodity fetishism went into why you and Nick chose to establish it as a worker co-op? And if it was part of the reason, how do we do a better job promoting sort of these people who Tina Fey sort of dismissed as just sort of, you know, hand hand labor, you know, just sort of muscle and 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 bone who who had to move her sets around. How do we actually do a better job um, within something like a worker co-op promoting the people who maybe aren't on camera but are integral for the production of entertainment itself? Yeah, I mean, I I think a big part of that is you know one in terms of on screen. You know, I totally agree that whether it's Thirty Rock or really any show, you know, anytime you hear about unions, it's always negative. It's always making them seem like goons. That was my perspective of what unions were just because that's the TV I saw growing up. Um, and so I think, you know, one thing on screen we're what we're committed to is always punching up, you know, like there will never be jokes at the expenses of workers. There will never be dismissal of, you know, people's labor. If anything, you know, we'll do the opposite of that. Um, but I would say from a, you know, from an internal perspective, I think it's, uh, you know, being a worker cooperative, I think a way that you, uh, a way that you kind of show how valuable each of your workers are to them. uh, And uh, in general is a worker cooperative gives people the opportunity to have a say in, uh, in what they're working on, how they're working, and also gives them a share of the profit at the end of the year. And so, you know, inherently, you're a lot more valued as a, a worker, whether you are you know, um, doing payroll or whether you're a production assistant or, you know, whatever you have equal say within our company. Um, and so, so I think that that, um, yeah, I, I think that that generally is, you know, our, our approach to it. It does. I, I just, am always very cognizant of that when I, because for how I've had to set up my podcast, because I was, and we'll get to this later, I've been very dissatisfied with sort of either the quality of a lot of leftist podcasts where people don't have the fucking time to do research. I'm not blaming them. I'm not calling anyone stupid. A lot of these podcasts were sort of ad hoc projects that caught on. Um, And people have to work two or three jobs. And the podcast is just sort of part of that, um, except for a very few notable exceptions. And I guess for those notable exceptions, I've been sort of, I veer in a different way politically um, which we'll, we'll talk about later in terms of me being more anarchist and, and being a bit dissatisfied with some of the coverage of, of the MENA region in Asia. And uh, I just always really remember that. I always think when I'm listening to uh, a podcast, it takes a fuck ton of time to, to put together good research questions. And when I think of someone like a Chris Hayes, I'm always very cognizant of there's a whole team 
for him or a Hassan to make them sound as smart as they do. Part of that is their talent and their, their charisma, obviously. Part of that is there's a whole team to make him sound as eloquent as as he is, um, to boost his sort of natural intelligence. And um, I just always really keep that in mind when I think about these things, that there's this whole sort of hidden infrastructure uh, that go into these shows that you don't see because that is part of the illusion of celebrity. Absolutely. And the illusion of entertainment in general. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that's something that I didn't have a grasp on you know, not only the research and the time it takes to prepare for the script and for the dialogue of the show, but the lighting, the people doing the captions, the color, the, you know, the every component of film and every component of entertainment is so important because it's so expensive to, uh, you know, whether you're like doing a, you know, a show like Hassan Minaj or you're, um, you know, or you're doing a film like us, it's really exp- any amount of airtime is really expensive. So everything has to go exactly right. And that means that there need to be 15 people on set making sure that every little thing is going right. And I totally agree. You never see that. You don't see that, you know, the amount of labor that goes into everything. And that's not just entertainment and film, of course. Um, but it's definitely something I have uh, seen so much clearer that, you know, we don't get any sense of, of all the people working behind the scenes and that's on purpose to make it seem like, Oh, these people on TV are just superheroes. That's why they're so rich. That's why they have all this fame. That's why, you know, they get this stuff and I don't. And when in reality, that's not true at all. It's like a bunch of, you know, me and you's doing research behind the scenes that make those people, um, you know, who they are. Mm -hmm. So, um, to explore some of the tension of, fame and leftism means has done, you know, a really interesting job where for me, AOC is fine. But what I've really been interested in is how you've tried to showcase people who aren't famous or who are not trying to integrate themselves into systems uh, of power where they can get fame, where Julia Salazar, you know, had to work very hard, but now that she's in a position of power, it gives her much more media reach. She is going to be contacted a lot more by something like the New York Times or New Yorker. A Marxist roofer is not, right? Like that that dude uh, is not going to be contacted uh, by media and is not in a uh, structural position where he can sort of amplify his notoriety uh, via these sort of media feedback loops. A female organizer in Flint should be much more famous considering how much uh, Flint has suffered and uh, but uh, as we know, the the reason uh, Flint uh, is suffering is is because of forces of sort of structural racism, white supremacy, uh, the violence of neoliberal capitalism, a whole host of other symptoms that we probably haven't even diagnosed yet, and will be consigned to silence because it it doesn't serve the powers that be to elevate uh, a woman's, especially a powerful, eloquent woman's story um, in that way. So. I, I wanted to ask for means because you have this sort of interesting tension where you have Pamela Anderson and uh, Chapo Trap House and uh, probably some leftist celebrities who I imagine will, will support you down the line who, when you unveil uh, means uh, in, in, I believe, February. I wanted to ask, is are these two goals compatible? Is there like sort of a dialectics going on where you think something new will can 
can be born of where we have both the Marxist roofer and Pamela Anderson. Um, how do we bring in these new voices it, while at the same time working with those who already possess this sort of fame and power, which in and of itself is an inequality? To be famous is an inequality, and 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 we don't like those as as progressives. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a really good point, and I think it's something that Nick and I spent a lot of time thinking about, especially as we. Like you said, you know, we we basically plotted out, you know, two and a half months of free content uh, when we announced announced means back in March. And some of them were explainers, you know, just kind of like, what is feminism? What is capitalism? Um, you know, wealth is immoral, things that we just kind of felt like everyone needs a level set. And then we created some entertainment content. And but through that, we, you know, something that we have always been um very adamant about. And I think it's because both Nick and I were kind of radicalized through a lot of ways, but especially through street fight radio is that you, your experience as a working person, uh, gives you the authority to talk about life under capitalism. You don't need to have a PhD. You don't need to have read Marx. You don't, which of course, you know, Dan, the Marxist roofer is the most well-read person I know in real life. He leads our book group for DSA He's incredible, but you don't need that in order to look around and say, this is bullshit. Um, and so, you know, whether it was uh, Dan, the Marxist roofer or Egypt, who was our organizer from Flint, uh, who did a few of our explainers, you know, w they wrote the scripts and, and we wrote them with them. But, you know, they wrote those. Um, and so for us, it was, yeah, it's very important to just show people that you don't need to use big words. You don't need to use words like proletariat to understand what's happening and to speak to it and to feel like you have a voice within this. Um, and so, you know, we started out with that. We, you know, other than AOC, who, you know, was not a part of our means TV, you know, campaign, she didn't, you know, she, she wasn't in any of our videos or anything like that. When we started out, it was basically all just people we knew and organizing people and working people that we put in videos because um, those were the people we had access to. And then people like Pamela Anderson or Rob Delaney or, you know, John Cusack, then those people came along. But I think it's because they really appreciated the content that we had with people who are just everyday working people who are fed up with this shit and can talk about it in a plain, uh, you know, in a kind of straight, understandable way that anybody could understand and, and get with. Um, so, you know, that's something we're going to continue to do is highlight, you know, highlight and spotlight people who have something to say and who would never be given a platform otherwise to say it. And I think people like, you know, celebrities will come along and hopefully give us money. But if they don't, they don't, <laughs> you know, I mean, that would be the best thing if someone's in that kind of position and they're a leftist. It's like what you can do is, you know, give us money because the working people who we, you know, are supported from have uh, given us all they have. Um, so. And but ultimately in like a utopian ideal where you're reading Ursula K. Le Guin, you've had way too much wine, your cat is starting to look like some three-dimensional being. Do you think about fame in this way of it's another inequality that we would want to overcome in, in a more better society? I mean, that's really interesting. I, I mean, probably, but you know, I definitely think in general, because celebrity means wealth and wealth means power. And, you know, but I think if all of us were out here making a wage that allowed us to have a comfortable life, if all of us had health care, if all of us, 
you know, didn't have massive amounts of debt, you know, the inequality would be a lot less. So I think that celebrities should be paid a lot less. I think that, you know, again, talk going back to, it's like the reason that some of those celebrities are paid so much is because the crews on their sets aren't paid, you know, very well, or, you know, they are prioritized. So I think in general, things need to be reprioritized. Do I have an issue with celebrity overall? I mean, not entirely, but you know, and, and I have seen, you know, when I met Alexandria, nobody knew who she was. Um, and she was standing on a train stop getting denied left and right by people who she was trying to talk to. And now that she has this status, it has allowed her and us to shift the Overton window in a way that I didn't think was possible. So, you know, I think there are other ways to do that. But I also think in this time, it has been, uh, it has been valuable. So I was cycling today. I live in uh, sort of rural Taiwan because uh, it's very low cost and there's health insurance. So if I get sick, I don't die. Um, I have health problems and it's very difficult for me to live in the U.S. uh, currently uh, because of those. So I'm cycling along and I see uh, this guy fat smoking a cigarette and my initial reaction to be honest is ugh, you know his neck beard looks shitty and then i was you know five minutes later i said well you know what actually that's probably what most of our bodies look like or are going to look like under capitalism sort of this um is how most people look right like when you actually stop and look around at people particularly people who don't have a lot of money um and are fully exposed to sort of the meat grinder of our modern uh, economic exploitation system, got teeth missing, you got pot bellies, you got floppy breasts, you got saggy butts, you got stringy hair. And I, when we look at celebrity, we, we very rarely see any of that. Um, we do have some people who are doing a good job uh, talking about body positivity and diversity of appearance. But, um, and I think to be honest, like for the, um, a lot of the leftists we like who are men, they don't have to worry about this shit. But for women, it's extremely difficult, um, to, to have an appearance of, of anything other than perfection or beauty. One of the most noted Bozzy positivists is that woman Jamila from uh, The Good Place, who's a drop dead supermodel. So I'm wondering for you as a woman who is doing things like casting, who's worked in uh, politics, which can be very superficial and cruel uh, to women, what are your thoughts about this idea of you're trying to put together media that is anti-capitalist? Do you think about this question of sort of bodies and the bodies we see on screen and, and how you maybe want to do things differently in terms of the content that Means puts out? Yeah, I mean, I, I, definitely. And I think that's a good point that I totally agree that, you know, men in spotlights, whether they're leftist men or on the right, uh, there is the bar is so low. You know, it's like get up, brush your hair, brush your teeth, and go out. That like literally don't even wash your face. Meanwhile, women, you know, the process. Like you know, Nick and I have been on uh, cable news a few times, and you know, the process for me to get ready is so much longer. And I don't even, you know, I don't even know how to do my makeup for TV and all these other things that you have to know how to do, or else you'll be totally ridiculed. Um, 
you know, it, it, it is bullshit. Um, and it is, you know, it's like we live in a patriarchy and, and it's like very much, uh, hardened into us. And I think, you know, the way that we think about it for means is of course we want to, you know, in the, in the things that we're casting and the people that we're casting, we're not casting the typical, you know, Hollywood people, like they already have jobs. Um, and I think by being a worker cooperative, by being anti-capitalist, we inherently, um, <clears throat> we inherently, you know, reach out to, or, you know, naturally we are in connection with a lot of people who are on the fringes of, um, of what would be acceptable in Hollywood, uh, <clears throat> for whatever reason. And so it's really important to us to, yeah, work with all kinds of different people, um, you know, work with trans folks and non-binary folks and, you know, and women and, and make sure that like, they're the ones in the writing rooms. It's like, you know, I think a lot of times the reason we see so much sexist imagery is like, it's men who are writing all of this stuff or like Tina Fey, who's also sexist, <laughs> you know, like it's, we need people in the room who are just not, you know, sexist and racist. And that also helps with the whole process. Um, so it's definitely a focus for us. It's not something we think we're going to tackle immediately. It's like, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, or, 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 um, you know, destroy immediately, but we're definitely focused on that. And I think, you know, when you watch means TV stuff, you'll see that it isn't just like the typical, you know, beautiful 90 pound blonde woman. All the questions are serious. I'm very serious. This is why I'm good on podcasts, but terrible on dates. It's like a date, Naomi, for like men or women. This is how I talk to them. It's uh, exhausting for everyone, but it's good for listening. So um, something that is interesting because I've experienced it. I got denied a couple sort of interview opportunities where I criticized um, it wasn't Jacobin, but it was similar to Jacobin. And if people want to do their homework, there's not a lot of things that look like Jacobin that are Jacobin. So it's a little riddle for everyone. So I criticized something like Jacobin and all of a sudden I was sort of shunned from this, uh, sort of, uh, wing of this particular organization that I had wanted to interview. Um, and this has happened sort of multiple times, uh, in sort of various contexts where if you criticize one person, you get shut off from sort of this whole uh, wing of leftists or, or sort of um, individuals who know each other through media context or sort of, to be perfectly frank, a lot of the same people appear on each other's shows, at least in terms of uh, the main form of leftist media right now, which is podcasting. It's sort of this, uh, they're not my friends, so I'll say it as someone who, just from the outside looking in, it looks like a giant circle jerk. It's really weird one person will, they all circle around in their shows and, and sort of our podcast is like, well, why don't you talk to different people? Um, and so in particular for international coverage, this gets really dicey. Um, some people within the U.S. left are fans of things like Grey Zone. Uh, Matt Taibbi uh, and, uh, invited them onto his, his platform and a lot of the MENA activists I know, so individuals I've interviewed or spoken to in places like Iran, uh, Lebanon, uh, Syria, and elsewhere, found that absolutely repugnant. Uh, the same thing happens with China, where there is uh, very divisive opinions in the U.S. left. Um, we'll use someone like, uh, well, you can just go to something like Jacobin. I don't want to um, be, be overly critical, but 
Um, there's a lot of people who I think have a very simplistic understanding of China who've never been there. There are Chinese Americans and uh, Vietnamese Americans who have very different opinions from other Chinese Americans and Vietnamese Americans or Chinese Americans who have very different opinions from Taiwanese Americans who have very different opinions from Chinese who live in China and Taiwanese who live in Taiwan and Chinese who live in Taiwan who say they're Chinese. Okay, and you get the idea. So I'm wondering for means, if how do you go about sort of dealing with criticism and let's say we have something like a China or like a, a MENA region where we are going to get very diverse opinions. I'll say unequivocally, and you don't need to share this, this is just me for for my platform, I, I despise gray zone. I think they are awful. And you don't need to comment on that if you don't want to, I just want to put that out there. But there are going to be things there where someone like me has a reaction where they, they'll see a, a gray zone on a Matt Taibbi and they'll go, I'm never listening to this again. Uh, whereas other people would, you know, they like gray zone. So for, for something like means where you are trying to do this sort of what I imagine is a Big Ten approach, what does criticism look like? What does feedback look like? And how do we move beyond, you think, some of these, this factionalism, which really does weaken the left as, as both a force in media and politics? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, uh, you know, that kind of reaction from people to, you know, cut certain individuals off if they say the wrong thing or if they say something that's not, you know, like, you know, within the line of thought on Twitter for that day, you get shunned. You know, I think a lot of people are learning that that is, you know, is not a good tactic. And I think as the left gets bigger and uh, more has more involvement from different people in the U.S. over the next few years. I mean, you know, because it does feel so new, this movement, that I think people are nervous to say the wrong thing or be associated with the wrong people because we've been ostracized for so long, because communism has been ostracized for so long here, that I think people are just, you know, kind of uh, have knee-jerk reactions. Uh, I think that will lessen in the next few years as we all get a little bit more comfortable that this is a movement that we are in that a lot of people have a lot of different opinions, um, but that generally, you know, we feel like we're all moving, want to be moving toward the same place. So, uh, so yeah, I'd say like that in general. And then as, as far as means and criticism, we know that we'll, you know, that we'll put out something that people don't like. We've already put out stuff about Venezuela and, and other places that, people don't like. Um, and we of course hear that and we of course take that into consideration. Um, and we'll have to change a lot, especially once we launch and we get more feedback from people about the kind of stuff they want to see, the kind of stuff they don't like. Um, we'll be responsive to that. Um, you know, it's nice because we don't have any corporate backers or VC backers that we can really just listen to people who are, you know, giving us feedback. But again, everybody's going to have 17 different opinions about every single issue. Um, and it's just something that we as the left have to figure out, okay, how do we not get stuck on each of these, listen to each other's opinions, continue to evolve, um, but not constantly be stuck with inside ourselves um, so we aren't making any progress outwardly. So, you know, and again, means being a worker cooperative, it allows us to be much more receptive to feedback because there are more of us contributing to, you know, the initial content and then the you know, review process and all of that. So I think we'll, you know, we'll mess up plenty of times and we'll, uh, 
you know, and then we'll fix it and keep moving. And that's just a part of it. And I think people just have to accept that, like, we're all, you know, we're all kind of dummies. We're all going to mess up at some point and we have to stop kind of canceling each other and cutting each other off uh, for doing that. So I made a joke. I forget who it was with. It might have been with uh, John Holloway. So John is like a world famous professor. David Graeber cites him as a hero. He's like lecturing in Monterey and, and studying with the Zapatistas. It's easier to get someone like that to respond to an email than, let's say, you know, like a small Midwestern podcast. I'm not joking. It's easy. It's easier to email Yale and email like the leading scholar in constitutional law and say, could I do an interview than it is to, to get like an anarchist podcast to respond to an email in my experience. And when we were talking a little bit ago, um, we were talking sort of about what I called colorfully. I hope this gets, if I ever get famous, I would love quotes like this to be in context of a circle jerk. But it does really seem like this sort of incestuous relationship where five Brooklyn apartments host different platforms and then they will sort of go on the little sort of media niches that they've carved out for each other. You see this in book talks as well and so on and so forth. I've never really felt comfortable with a lot of the U.S. left because it does really seem very Darwinian of people don't have this sort of um, uh, this desire to promote new voices as opposed to amplifying and developing their own. And I'm wondering from without naming names or uh, this is something where I am genuinely curious is it something where it's, it just it feels so terrifying that people are constantly thinking about building their own brand, expanding their own presence, where they, they do realize this is a criticism? They have heard from other people that it does feel incestuous and that this is something that needs to change and means sees itself as, as potentially a way to do that. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's like, you know, compared to a podcast, it's like, I think you know, so much attention has been put on podcasts because they've really been like this, you know, they've opened the floodgates for all of us in a lot of different ways. They definitely radicalized me listening to Chapo and listening to Street Fight. Um, those, those were my entryways into like my ideology. And so I really appreciate what the, what those, uh, podcasts have done, especially, you know, someone like Chapo Trap House proving that, you can make a fuckload of money doing this. And that's really great. That to me is a, a, a good sign. Uh, I think it is obviously important that if you are making a hundred thousand, a hundred and twenty thousand dollars a month, that you understand that your role is to help bring others in. Um, but if you don't, you know, it's like Chapo or any of these other places don't necessarily owe us anything. You know, they just started a podcast and it went crazy. Whereas with means, we've been able to look at the podcasts that we love and say, how do we make this a bigger thing for all of us? How do we like make this something we can actually control and build on? Um, and so it's not just individual projects that either peter out after people get tired and exhausted because it's so much work or, you know, there's, you know, they become so big that everyone is frustrated with them because they aren't doing all the things. And so, you know, means was a, it is is a project to create a, an organization, not just for, you know, 
media, but eventually we want to start a cooperative podcast network. And so instead of, you know, and create an alternative to Patreon that doesn't take, uh, you know, the huge percentage that Patreon does from contributors. And eventually we're also going to be rolling out uh, a gaming, a video game uh, branch of means. So the idea is like, we want to create this business that a lot of people can come into, can work within, um, and feel like we're building uh, something institutionally for the left and building wealth for the left. But, you know, I, I think that I totally understand people being frustrated with, you know, podcasts feeling like they, you know, are being shut out. I think a lot of times our expectations for those people are just, frankly, too high. <laughs> like, I know that's not, that isn't great, but it's like right now we only have a few you know, kind of quote unquote famous leftists outside of like AOC and whatever. Um, and it's like, you know, they're just, they're like guys who started a podcast. Like we can't necessarily expect that they're going to like lead the front. And it's just like, they've opened the door for a lot of us to be able to do that. Of course I have critiques of, of Chapo and, and other people, but I think generally it's, it's like, you know, we have to build institutions. We can't build, you know, uh, uh, single things that are based off of personalities and expect those to serve us all um, because they just won't. Where I'm a bit more annoyed is sort of like the, I want to make the tent as big as possible as opposed to building up ringleaders. And I've become a bit annoyed with a lot of these individuals who I'm making this criticism in this because I know there's a chance they might listen. There's no way in hell if I email any of them or try to get in touch with them as sort of a random person that they'll respond, but it, it, I, I would like if they take anything away from my criticism and we're going to return to means because I don't want to, uh, the soapbox to get too big, but I hope they do away a little bit with this sort of professional expert who comes on every five shows. And I, I definitely think all these platforms and I hope for what means does is I love the idea of being anti-American. I'd like to see more non-Americans making those criticisms. Uh, particularly for some of the countries we talked about. Um, there's a plethora of amazing leftists from MENA, from Asia, who I think I would much rather hear on these podcasts than another white dude uh, with a PhD. That was my little soliloquy. Um, we're moving to the tail end, and I wanted to bring up another leftist politician. He's very handsome. He's almost as handsome as Hassan Minaj, and that's Chesa Boudin. He's a good-looking guy. Um, and, uh, Chessa, when I interviewed him, had this really sort of interesting idea. I don't know if it'll come to fruition. You know how politicians are, no matter how much we idealize them, the moment you turn your back, uh, they're going to let you down. You constantly have to be on them. So Chessa, when I interviewed him, he said, uh, that he wanted to hire, uh, people who had been previously incarcerated, uh, to work in the DA's office of San Francisco, which I thought was a great idea. Uh, I absolutely loved that. Um, and I was thinking about sort of this idea of fame as inequality, and it sort of let me realize that, you know, like Brett and Brian, I think for a lot of people, and uh, Maximilian Alvarez, uh, that, that's definitely my sweet spot of leftism, of Max's project of trying to center working people, and Brett and Brian very openly being like, we were dumb, we are dumb, <laughs> like it's perfectly fine to be dumb. But how a lot of leftism works in the media space, at least currently, and I really do hope means can be a part of changing this, is you have to be extremely eloquent, well-spoken, and knowledgeable from the jump. 
There's no learning period. There's no getting your feet wet. Brett and Brian are um, an outlier. They're, they're not the norm. The norm is usually someone who went to a good state school or private school or had connections uh, that allowed them to take the time to do research into podcasts like I do, take the time to start a magazine like Bhaskar did at Jacobin, take the time to get a PhD so they can go on these podcasts and so on and so forth. And I'm wondering for for means and, and just generally how you talk to leftists where they have to be aware there's a lack of diversity both in terms of class and uh, race, which is problematic and needs to be addressed. Are there ways beyond sort of the internship that we can give people the time and space to develop that where they, they didn't have that chance in life to go to like a Georgetown? Um, I, I guess, is there a way where I can get less people with Sam Cedar's class background on Sam Cedar's show or less people with my class background on a means? Um, what are some of the programs that you think that, that might look like to, to make those changes to these structures? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, uh, you know, I... I... I totally agree that, you know, for the most part, a lot of people have the same, have a similar class background within the left right now, especially ones that have, you know, power, even by having a podcast or for us working on means it's, you know, we are, we do have privilege in that both of us are working full time time on means. We don't really make any money, but we, you know, still have a privilege that we're able to do that. And we understand that. Um, and I think that it's, you know, the, the way that we open that up to other people is, is one speaking in just plain language, whether we're talking about the initiative of means or, you know, communism in general, like talking to people and engaging with people about just daily life under capitalism, I think allows, allows people to understand you don't need a degree. Um, you know, and I was like, before the 2016 election, I was like, I listen to NPR all day. I, you know, I very much was in the kind of brain rot mindset that it was like, to be an expert, you have to have a degree in this. And it's like, I have a degree and I didn't learn anything (laughs) for my degree. You know, nothing that I applied to my job now or my previous career did I learn in school. And that that's bullshit. Uh, Nick, my partner went to film school and dropped out after a semester. He didn't go to college. Um, and so I think both of us realize that that's obviously bullshit, that you have to have a higher degree to uh, be able to talk to these things. But like specifically within film, uh, film is, uh, you know, working in film, you have to have really specific skills, whether you're, you know, a gaffer or whether you're, uh, you know, whether you're working behind the camera or whatever, you have to have skills. So for us, it's really important that like we always try to have uh, people on shoots, whether it's a PA, so you're you're there to kind of just help help people, and it allows you to watch how a set works, watch how things move, watch what people say. Um, so we try to have uh, people like that on set to give them exposure to what a set is like, um, and make relationships with those people so that they can continue coming back, getting paid for that work, being able to experience it, not being unpaid interns or interns who make eight dollars an hour but people who are respected as professionals who are new in this area. So, you know, for us, it's like outwardly, it's, you know, in our TV shows, in our movies, 
in how we speak about means. It's just speaking plainly about the world we're in, about how much bosses suck and how much capitalism sucks and what kind of world we want differently. Um, and then I think internally it's providing as many opportunities as possible to have people not only be on set or be involved, but, uh, but also get paid to do it. Um, so like, for instance, we're working, we're, uh, creating an animated show with the Trillbillies and we're working with, um, the, uh, Apple shop, which is, uh, the Appalachian media Institute out of Whitesburg, Kentucky. And we're working with 10 of their students to do voiceover for that, uh, animation to do some animation work. And these are things that they're all interested in, but they've never had any experience doing, um, so we're trying as much as possible to engage young people, people new to the industry and people who otherwise would be completely shut out because of financial situations or, you know, where they are ge geographically um, and invite them into the process as much as possible. Um, and, and hopefully that will just grow. And again, we want to present ourselves as a company where it's like you don't need to have worked at Netflix to work here. You just need to be someone who has a sense of your ideology that's aligned with ours um, and a sense that you want to contribute to this. I guess my fear is I, I, um, and I guess being so close to, or getting to better know sort of labor politics in China and Taiwan, there's a lot of people who've never worked talking to workers and, uh, or talking about the politics of being a worker. And I think the, the three individuals we talked about, Brett, Brian, and, Maximilian do a great job of saying, look, that, 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 that ship don't sail. That, that shit is not going to fly. Do you see something where in terms of beyond just sort of labor, where you're also trying to get Dan the roofer sort of in a, in a, in a opportunity to have a voice in media that otherwise would go to the person who graduated from Georgetown, who worked in publishing and, and sort of the structures of, of leftist representation that we see currently where you're not going to see a lot of class diversity of those people sitting behind the desk talking to you or, or being the host of a TV program. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, Dan is a good example of someone who, you know, he lives in Detroit. We love working with him. He's, you know, a great person. He's a roofer, so he's really busy, but like during this time, he's not so much. So, you know, we, we want to film more with him and, and more with other people in Detroit in general who are, um, you know, part of the organizing scene or, you know, people who have, have things to say. So yeah, those are the people we're putting, uh, in front of the camera, you know, of course we're also, it's, uh, we, we are making sure that everything we create has a very high, is very high quality. Um, and so we hire, we of course hire professionals as well, whether those are professional actors or um, technicians. But again, a lot of those people are shut out of the industry for one reason or another. And there are so many people who are so talented who just need an opportunity um, that we will be really happy to give them. And I think, you know, so yeah, our, I think our content also will, you know, it, it's not going to hit you over the head politically. You know, we're not going to be democracy now. There, I mean, we will have a weekly news show a weekly live news show. But other than that, it's going to be entertainment. But, you know, it's going to educate people on, like, who the bad guys are. And it's always the people at the top, you know. So it's like trying to bring in more and more people through entertainment, which we think is a much easier way to kind of bring people in and talk to people about this ideology that we have 
um, rather than, you know, any other form. It's the most powerful way we can kind of get across those ideas um, and the idea that, yeah, all of us working people are the ones who deserve to be in charge of everything and that we're the ones who should be telling our stories behind the camera, in front of the camera. Um, and that, you know, means as a way we can actually do that. So I was reading Brett and Brian and uh, I mentioned them a lot because I like them. And uh, a lot of the people who I've mentioned otherwise, mm, I think are fine. I think they have their niche, but they don't interest me the same way Brett and Brian do. And um, they were talking a lot about their media as sort of being a way to de-radicalize people from the right. And I know mean some of the content I've seen in, in ridiculing people like Ben Shapiro uh, in particular, or I think you've done a couple videos ridiculing him, um, seem to have that goal in mind of sort of puncturing the, um, I don't know, the toxic masculinity uh, or the toxic sort of white um, supremacist politics of someone like a Tucker Carlson or a Ben Shapiro. Um, and I can understand that notion of de-radicalizing for, um, to put it bluntly, mostly white viewers because the current iteration of conservative politics is, is nakedly white supremacist at this point. There's no more dog whistles. Uh, the dogs are... The dogs are here and they're um, doing horrific things uh, in, to uh, black and brown people uh, throughout the United States and all over the world. But I'm wondering for, for means, have you talked about for, for individuals who uh, are not white? So we have like, let's say a Brett and Brian or, or these other sort of uh, satires that we can, we can unleash on a, a toxic figure like a Ben Shapiro. But for a young black kid or a young Hispanic kid who doesn't see any media representation that, that talks about why the world is the way it is, do you think that for, for at least what you're trying to do, you, you also want to make sure that it's not just, to put it bluntly, catering to a white audience? And is this question of, which I've heard not just from Brett and Brian, who are saying it in good faith, and I agree, you hear that basically carte blanche for everyone we've talked about, that what we're doing is de-radicalizing. And do you think that's too much of a focus to be, again, blunt on, on white audiences when a lot of, of non-white people aren't going to be radicalized or de-radicalized the same way because the, the, the binary is different? They can't go to a conservative party that that openly hates them because it's white supremacist. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know that it's uh, too much of a focus, like, you know, especially for a street fight. They're based in Columbus, Ohio. They understand that the, the bulk of their base at this point are uh, young white guys. And so I think that they understand that those are the people that they feel like they've been able to reach the most and that that's the good that they're doing. I think that they also impact a lot of people of color as well. I think that they have a big audience of uh, black and brown people as well. But I do think that, you know, that's something that we, that was important to us that, you know, when we started Means TV, that we'd always have uh, a YouTube channel that would be putting out content that kind of went against, whether it's the Prager U's or Tucker Carlson's or, you know, all these other kind of propaganda machines that are churning out multiple videos a day on YouTube um, and that are being prioritized within the algorithms. I think within media, uh, it gets probably a lot more attention than it really needs to, um, but it was still important to us. So that's why when, you know, we started Means, our good friend, Sarah June, who created the Neon Cat uh, meme or video, 
she uh, were using her YouTube that had 200,000 subscribers uh, before we even started so that every video we put out, we were putting out to as big of an audience as possible. And also it makes it so it makes it, it makes it so it's a lot harder to shut us down if we have a video on our YouTube channel that's prized YouTube history, which is Neon Cat. Um, and so it was very important to us to like be in the, the YouTube algorithms because we were seeing so much fascist uh, YouTube content out there that is disguised as just like uh, random thoughts from a video gamer that, you know, is completely fascist. So I do think it's important, but no, I don't think it's the most important thing. I think that there is a whole swath of the population that is not affected by that kind of rhetoric at all, like you're saying, and who need to be reached and who need to be connected with and who probably identify with this ideology even more than those who people are trying to de-radicalize. So I definitely think it's, a, you know, a, a place that people can and should focus on. Uh, but at the same time, I agree that what we should really be focusing on is bringing in larger audiences, um, you know, different people into this movement. It's the same thing as like, I don't think a good political strategy is going after centrists, <laughs> you know, like I don't want, I don't need, want to convince them of anything. I can much more easily convince, um, you know, my neighbors here in Detroit that capitalism is bad rather than a centrist. So, uh, you know, I think you should focus on both, but you know, the de-radicalization I think has probably been carried away by media quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Naomi, it was a pleasure chatting with you. The last, uh, question, um, I'll bring us back to the beginning where you were sort of joking off mic about me being fat and scaring your cats. Uh, how I know you uh, was through your your brother when we were landscaping in Ann Arbor. And so, you know, there is a lot of privilege going into that where both your brother and I, you know, sort of came from middle class backgrounds in a very well-to-do school district. Um, this eventually led me to sort of know you. You're now in sort of this media position where who knows where it'll go. But, you know, you're, you, you are doing interviews with uh, reputable outlets. You're uh, related to politicians who are in Washington. Uh, Pamela Anderson is blowing you XOXO on Twitter. And, you know, I'm sure some, like, rappers and, and musicians will, will work with you and then, you know, become famous. Um, and so I think a lot about this question of, of sort of privilege and access in media because, um, to be frank, if I didn't know you, I doubt this conversation would happen. My experiences, as I was talking to you about with a lot of leftists, is it's just, it's impossible to get a hold of them unless you know them in some sort of random way like this. And uh, I'm wondering for, for means, I guess, how you sort of want to do, what would be your advice for someone listening to this who, who you know may, may contact you? And I know that you've done a lot of interviews and you probably have had random people contact you. Someone who read it and said, wow, these people sound different. They sound like they're for real. What, what sort of mechanisms have you and Nick sort of put into place? So if someone is inspired by what you do, that when they contact you, they don't get what 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 I've had to go through, where it, it it's awful when you're, um, you've sacrificed a lot of money and, and time to try to do something progressive and you reach out to the people you admire and they don't get back to you. It is radicalizing it makes you really give up on a lot of what those people said and so i'm wondering for you for for the people who who may listen to this through the other media you're going to put out and and how means tv is framed how have you made it so that 
they're not going to have to go through that experience of, wow, you know, um, Chomsky, whatever you think of him, um, he does have sort of that interesting rule, it seems like, where if you can get a, his email, he'll, he'll email, he doesn't care. You know, he has all these interviews with like 15-year-olds you know, who've contacted him. And I don't agree with Chomsky on everything, I think probably. But um, what, what for you are your ways where if, if, if how are you going to make sure you practice what you preach? in terms of this idea of we want to hear from the people who uh, won't have access to um, typical networks of power or, or uh, access. And, and how do you think maybe that can be a lesson for the larger left? Um, what are your thoughts on that, sort of this weird coincidence of us coming together and, and, and what it says to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that, you know, we try to be as reachable as possible. Now it's like, it's Nick and I, and then we have, uh, you know, Sarah June, who's based out of LA, who develops a lot of our content and then, you know, a handful of other people we work with, but it's really Nick and I doing all the, every bit of administration. So answering, you know, people's questions, uh, doing legal, doing HR, doing payroll, like all of this stuff. And so I would say through this experience, I really learned like to give people some grace. You know, I certainly have a lot of emails that I haven't responded to, not because of any reason other than I cannot handle the, the inflow, which is which obviously is an incredible problem to have. But, you know, I would say just to start that, I've really tried so hard to keep up with email because I'm so type A and I still can't do it. Um, and so I would say as a person, if you've done that kind of thing, if you've tried to reach out to you know, us or Chapo or wh whoever and haven't heard back, you know, sometimes it is what it is. Other times, you know, like for us, it's shoot us a DM. Our DMs are open. Our Facebook messages are open. Our Instagram messages are open. I check them every day. Nick checks them every day. We have a contact email, contact at means.media that we check every single day. If people want to submit work that they've already done, we have an email submissions at means.media that we check every day that people are always sending, you know, short videos, feature length films, everything in between too. So we tried to create as many channels as possible that people can get through to us. So if they send us an email and haven't heard back, they can send us a DM. Um, and I really appreciated the people who, you know, will follow up and understand that, you know, we're juggling a lot and really, but that, that the people who have made this happen are our priority and that we're really trying to communicate and be as transparent as possible. Um, so I'd say, you know, it's like we're, we're trying to keep the communication channels as open as possible um, and then just have as many people working on means as possible so that, you know, anywhere you go, you can kind of tap into somebody. Um, like I think about, you know, it's like you could never get a hold of someone at Netflix or Hulu or other than like customer support, obviously. And so, you know, we're really trying to be as transparent as possible while also and, and available as possible while also trying to <clears throat> get this thing off the ground, which involves a ton of time, energy, and effort um, that can sometimes sidetrack us from, you know, responding to people. I understand the, uh, I understand the frustration and, you know, I would say being on the other side of it and probably having some people who are like, hey, you haven't responded to my email, that uh, I really appreciate people's patience and understanding that, you know, at least from us, it is 
nothing personal other than just, you know, not being able to, to get through it all uh, day after day. Well, I hope the, uh, these conversations are always sort of two-way mirrors where you, you're trying to talk about the issue. And then, as we sort of talked about, uh, when you're connected, that's the humor that I hear on a lot of the podcasts. They talk about the mafia. Hey, that you can hope that what you'll put out there will, will be reflected by people who otherwise you couldn't reach. And um, just from, there's a lot more we all could be doing and there's a lot of work to be done because it really is a life and death struggle for a lot of people, uh, be it climate, be it internment camps, be it bombs being dropped, be it the, the myriad of horrors going around the world uh, at this moment. It really is a life and death struggle. So um, if, I, if I've sounded overly serious or overly critical, uh, it's with that sort of those are the stakes that we're playing for um, at the moment. Um, so I, I've really appreciated your time. And um, uh, it, 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 would there be anything else that we didn't mention or that you would like to spotlight uh, that, that didn't come up for whatever reason? I would just say if people want to learn more about what we're doing at Means TV, uh, they can go to means.media and that's where they can find out everything about us. Um, we launched the streaming service uh, on February 26th, so just a little more than a month out, we'll have a whole library of documentaries, full-length films, TV shows, live shows every week. Um, so we're really, you know, we're doing all this with less than 200,000 bucks. So we're working as hard as we can to get this thing up and running, and we really hope that people will like it. If you have some money, feel free to donate. We're still collecting donations. That's you, Adam McKay. You hear that? Yeah, exactly. Or Michael Moore, you know, any of these rich lefties, if they would love to, if they would like to give us 50K, we will take it out of their hands. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, we, uh, we're launching on February or February 26th. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate your time, Dager. Dager.